Hello, I'm Lisa Hiller. I am Macarena Aguilar. And I'm Rebecca Lake. In this podcast series, we're on a mission to figure out how communicators can help change the climate conversation. This is our very first episode, and today we're starting our journey of discovery with one of Australia's leading social researchers, Rebecca Huntley. As well as being a sought-after expert on social trends, Rebecca holds degrees in law, film studies and gender. And if that's not enough, she's also the author of numerous books. And her latest one, which is out in June, is called How to Talk to People About Climate Change. I first met Rebecca last February at Australia's inaugural Climate Summit. This hugely popular event was actually not organised by the government, but by concerned citizens after our country experienced the worst fire season in living memory. I'm Mary Kostakidis, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here today for this pivotal event, the National Climate Emergency Summit. What a great turnout at the Melbourne Town Hall today. I I apologise for the delay, but as we speak, there's still a vast queue of uh, people um, down the road trying to get into the Town Hall. The people of Melbourne are engaged, and what a pity more of our politicians aren't engaged. The fires that burnt in every state of the country even forced me to leave my home. A lot has happened since then, but you would still remember those images that were beamed across the world of charred kangaroos on barbed wire fences, fleeing families huddled at the sea's edge under orange skies. People lost their lives and thousands of families lost their homes. The economic aftershock will be felt for a long time. More than a billion animals died, and some landscapes may be forever changed. Our National Science Agency, the CSIRO, confirmed that climate change had really set the scene for these fires. And for me, they were a terrifying glimpse into a future where the world had stayed on its current path, taking too little action to avert the full force of the climate crisis hurtling towards us. There were thousands of concerned Australians like me at the summit and many more watching online when Rebecca Huntley took to the stage. When I'm not sitting in front of the television crying about the climate crisis, I'm a researcher. I travel Australia and I listen to all kinds of Australians talk about how they feel about everything from government to climate change to the cost of bananas. Um, You know, my husband jokes that I'm an expert in the views of people who don't know what they're talking about. Um, But that's exactly what we need right now. Just because climate change is at the centre of my world and by acting on it I feel like I'm doing the right thing by my kids doesn't mean that everybody's the same. So I spend a lot of my time with people who will never make their way into this room but that doesn't mean that we can't build a climate movement and build climate messages that appeal to them. After I heard Rebecca Huntley speak at the summit, I thought she might have the answer to a question that had bothered me for years and was now troubling me deeply. Why, when we know that burning fossil fuels is causing the world to heat up and is threatening our economy, our way of life and our very existence on this planet, why haven't we been able to mobilise people at the necessary scale to deal with this building disaster? Rebecca and I had planned to do this interview at her place, but that was before the coronavirus crisis would force many of us into lockdown. Hello. Hi, Rebecca. How are you? 
Good, how are you? How's that audio for you? Yeah, good, thanks. You're actually the first person we've interviewed over the phone. I think that people are going to get used to hearing people over the phone and over Zoom in interviews because now that's pretty much all that happens. Yeah, exactly. Well, welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. So as a researcher, you travel around Australia listening to what people think about all kinds of issues, including climate change. But I'd like to start today with your own experience. Can you describe that moment when you went from being concerned about climate change to actually being alarmed? Yeah, I mean, it was a really, it was such an obvious and sharp moment that happened to me that it felt, you know, physical. One morning I turned on the TV and it was a lot of um, visuals from the second climate strike. There'd been one, but this was a much larger one, the kids' climate strike. And there were all these you know, kids that didn't look that much different than my eldest daughter, who's 11, with all these very funny and clever and and quite poignant signs about climate change. And I remember thinking, oh, good on those kids, you know, getting away from the iPads and, and telling the powers that be that we've got to do something about climate change. And then it dawned on me, you know, I am a person with a platform and a voice in our society. And, and while they were directly talking to politicians, I honestly felt they were talking to me, which is that you need to do something, you need to care. And really that was the moment that I switched from being kind of generally concerned about climate change and doing some things in my life to kind of falling over into a category that you can almost call alarmed, where climate change becomes a prism through which you see a lot of things and the gravity of it, the significance of it. Um, the need to act and also the need to make sure that all the things that I have the power to do in my life as a consumer, as a citizen, in my job needs to be directed to to that cause. And one of the things I reflected on at that time was it's not like at that moment I understood the science any better or understood the policy implications any better. I understood the personal implications. It was personal, it was emotional. It was such a significant moment that I got my first tattoo um, at 47. Really? Yeah, I got a tattoo. And what does your tattoo say? My tattoo is is of, is of the letter S because all of my three kids' names start with the letter S. I honestly felt like I needed to 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 kind of press into my skin in a kind of permanent way that I'd been changed by this moment and that everything I do from this point on is not only to protect the world for my kids but for everybody else, for everybody else's kids. It's interesting how making that emotional connection was what moved you from being concerned about climate change to being truly alarmed and really changing so many aspects of your life. And we do see that more and more, don't we, as people are getting increasingly worried. After the fires, for example, we saw people protesting for the very first time. And yet the world is still way off track if we want to avoid dangerous climate change. So why is this issue still so divisive? Yeah, I mean, look, it is. Climate change is often called a a wicked problem for a whole range of reasons. And I, I don't I don't disagree with that, but I don't think it's quite it quite suits. I think the work that's being done globally, and particularly in countries like Australia and America, where there is a very powerful institutionalised denial movement, and you know to some extent in the UK and Canada, but Australia and the US are actually often then kind of you know poster children for for the extent to which climate change has become a politicised issue. So 
we what we get in the community is really very significant divisions around politics, worldview, around climate change, which means that coming to kind of a consensus about acting is difficult, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 that's because from from quite an early stage, it was painted as a left wing issue, not a right wing issue. So instead of an issue around, okay, this is a this is a this is an energy transition issue, it's an economic um, transition issue, it's a national security issue. It became an issue around left and right, and it's very once though once you set up those ideological differences, it becomes very hard to break them down. You layer onto that a highly ideological and polarised media. And then also you lay into that a whole range of um, of challenges inherent in the problem, inherent in the problem. And one of the problem, one of the issues is it's an issue of science. And science literacy isn't necessarily that great in the community. It's an issue of sacrifice, of change, of behaviour change. Um, and all of the work that's done by really excellent psychologists and academics around the world also show it's a kind of issue that tends to make it hard for people to observe it as a general threat. It's a it's a build up a, a build a tiny but significant build up of a certain gas in the air over time, generated by the way we live our lives. So it, it, so unlike a war where we actually can see the enemy, or even unlike what we're going through now, which is coronavirus, where we all actually feel like, you know, there are, you know, behaviour change will actually mean that more, you know, more people won't die of a particular disease, people that we know or members of our community. Um, so it's it's really tricky. It's a knotty issue. I don't think it's an unsolvable issue, but it's a complex knotty issue at every level, psychologically, socially politically and it's run for a long time because it because it was always an issue of what was going to happen in the future in that period as it, as we've led up to emissions rising and and that that timeline to to act um, has started to slowly slowly decrease over time um, that politicization has been allowed to to build up and breaking down that politicization is going to be very hard I'd like to pick up on something you mentioned there. We are facing as a global community now another scientific issue, a health crisis. Are there any lessons that we can already take out of this situation? Yeah, look, there's some very very, (laughs) – I think there's going to be a million books and papers written about the the good and the bad of messaging out of this. I think in the Australian context, one of the very small but I think significant outcomes from this is – is how people gravitate to really, really clear, authentic um, science communicators. And that's a good thing because really it still shows that Australians respect expertise. Expertise clearly communicated without an agenda is what they're looking for. So that's a really good thing to build on as we talk about something like a health crisis like coronavirus or climate change. I think one of the things that it also really reinforces for me is the vital role of early intervention of clear language very, very beginning and not letting something drift. But one of the things that was obviously a a huge lost opportunity at the very beginning when it was clear that coronavirus was going to move beyond Wuhan was very, very simple messages about washing your hands, protecting the vulnerable, social distancing, blah, blah, blah. And 
we started with those messages perhaps too late when we also had to start with a whole range of other things that people had to absorb. So what's clear in, in, an, in, a, in, in talking about behaviour change or talking about climate change is that really early intervention around clear messaging is critical because as the issue gets more complex and people get more scared, they get more confused, they get more and more information, it becomes harder for them to process it. And that's when people go into that disenga disengagement or denial mode or in fear mode. And what you want is people to be concerned, informed and proactive. And so that's a pretty that's pretty clear. That's a pretty clear outcome that you want from the communication. So like I said, early intervention is key. The other thing I think that's been really interesting that I've observed in terms of parallels between coronavirus and climate change is how some people got the message really early, other people it took a while for there to be a whole lot of social signalling about how to change and some people remained oblivious. Mm. And some people may in fact continue to remain oblivious through this. It's so interesting, isn't it, how different people respond to these kind of crises in different ways. Absolutely. Going back to climate change, I understand that you explored the different ways that people react to this issue at Yale University where they've developed the Six Americas study. Yeah. And I understand that that study basically categorises the American population into six groups. Can you tell me more about that study? Yeah, it does. So so they've been doing that study for 12 years and it, it's it basically it divides the American community, the American citizenry in, into six groups around climate change that have very, very different approaches, respond very different to messaging. There's different demographic kind of skews in those groups. You know, um, for example, in the denial group, which they basically call um, just the dismissive, people who just dismiss climate change as a, as a hoax and a fraud. There tends to be a skew towards older people and what and white people and men and conservatives. Mm. <laughs> um, and then the alarm tends to skew to you know younger people living in urban areas, people well educated. So there's a there are always going to be demographic and attitudinal skews in how people respond to things. But what's been built up by the Six America study, which we hope to again do in, in greater detail in Australia, is that when it comes to communicating about climate change, you often have to say different things to different people to get the same outcome. Of course, it's part of that is people want to hear it from different kinds of people. The messenger is more important than the message. So for some people, they might be listening, you know, to the Premier or the Prime Minister. For other people, they don't want, they don't want to engage. They need somebody that is their age on social media. Just because we're saying different things to different groups of people with different kinds of voices doesn't mean it's an inconsistent message, means it's a tailored message and it's critical. So can you give me an example of what sort of messages you might communicate to those who fall into the disengaged, cautious or mildly concerned groups to get them to act on climate change? Yeah, so I did a really interesting project last year for WWF where we were um, trying to get people to get get a sense of how they felt about a rapid transition to renewable energy in Australia um, because of climate change. And we tested a whole, actually nine messages to see what, what really, um, you know, resonated with a group that were not necessarily dismissive of climate change, but it really wasn't the centre of where worldview really fitted into that disengaged or cautious or kind of mildly concerned group. And the thing that was really clear is that is that you actually didn't 
couldn't talk to them about scary timelines. You couldn't scare them into action. You had to really put a very positive, um, upfront um, concept of the solutions and build confidence that Australia was able to, to, to fulfil those solutions. So the message out of all the nine that we tested with those groups was about how clever Australians were at inventing cool things like Wi-Fi, that we were the first country that actually came up with the you know, concept of the solar panel. And, it, and, and all that stuff, you know, that is why people still love and trust the CSIRO. They think Australians are pretty good at coming up with really great solutions. And also the other thing that we know about Australians is they're early adopters of technology. They're tech, they're tech people, right? So one of the, up there with places like Singapore, you know, we love technology. We love, we think we're really, really optimistic and about what technology can do in a country that is, you know, big, big continent with lots of challenges and, you know, not a very big population. So that not only made people convinced that the solutions were going to be good, it convinced people, gave people confidence that Australia was well positioned to kind of fulfil those solutions. And without a lot of talk about lowering emissions or Paris commitments or any of that other kind of stuff, which they often worry about the, the, re the relevance and efficacy of those kinds of mechanisms in terms of actually getting things done. So it was quite practical, optimistic, solutions focused and building confidence in in us that we're capable of doing it. It's interesting what you say there about fear, that fear doesn't or doesn't work for this particular group. Um, what about movements like Extinction Rebellion and even the Friday March? Is Are these sorts of um, campaigns doing more harm than good in the sense of bringing these people on board who might be quite shocked by these kinds of interventions? Yeah, look, again, it's any, the thing about emotions is that there's a reason why we have them. None of them, there's very, very few emotions that are entirely negative. And fear was really important for me, you know, to turn me from being concerned to alarmed because I really, you know, in that moment when I was watching these kids, there was a whole range of emotions that were coming up. One of them was was guilt, like I need, to, I need to be able to do something about this or if I don't, if I'm not part of the solution, I'll feel guilty that I, you know, for my kids, part of it was fear about and concern and worry about the world that they're inheriting and about the level of their anxiety and concern about it, um, a whole range of things. So fear is important because when you really absorb the science, you know, <laughs> really absorb it, it's pretty hard not to feel fearful, right? Really, really hard not to feel fearful. So fear is is gets you off the couch, but fear can't be sustained because fear gets you into a really, you know, long, long periods of being fearful can be terrible for yourself, but not just, phys not just emotionally, but physically. Um, so worry and concern is important. You know, we can't just present a Pollyanna-ish view about climate change because that would be completely disingenuous. We do have to, to get a sense from people have to have a sense of what the opportunity loss of the possible loss of what could happen mm. is really important. And then you pivot to something else. You move to something else depending on the worldview of, of who you're communicating with and what you want them to do and what the issue is. So it's not that fear can't be productive. It's, it just has to be used strategically. Mm. I would never, ever be somebody who would dismiss people who are really, really prepared to put their lives on the line for climate change because I think they do so for the right reason. 
The problem with Extinction Rebellion is that it's about active disruption. So people kind of saw the climate strike, well, certainly in Australia in the research I did, people saw the children's climate strikes as kids exercising their democratic right to protest in a pretty minimal way. Now, one of the problems is the perception of Extinction Rebellion is that they're there to disrupt things. So one of the things that comes up all the time is, oh, there's these people gluing themselves onto the road and then the police and everybody have to shut off the road and, and deal with them rather than dealing with real crime. Now, that, that may be unfair, but that's the perception. And, of course, the people who are... The people who are yet to be convinced on climate change, one of the things that's really obvious about them is that rapid transitions in our economy and our society scare them because a lot of them haven't done very well when those transitions have happened. So the idea that you've got these people who they probably don't know and probably imagine they don't have much in common with, they're actively disrupting things all the time for climate change, you know, it's a problem. It's a problem. Now, I, I again, I think... No significant social, economic, political change happens without different kinds of groups putting different kinds of pressure on it. If you look at women getting the vote, if you look at civil rights in America, you always had a group of people who were prepared to do stuff that everybody looked at and said, oh, they're troublemakers. So I would never say that Distinction Rebellion should shut down. I do know that you do need a whole lot of other ways to convince people who are not going to be convinced by Extinction Rebellion. Mm. So people might not be convinced by others gluing themselves to the road, but what about something like the Australian bushfires? Surely an event like this is a tipping point when it comes to mobilising people to act on climate change. Yeah, look, I, it was, I always felt like I was a bit of a, of a wet blanket when I would say to large groups of people in the climate movement, look, you think this is a tipping point, but it's not. It is something that feels monumental to the alarmed and they hope, they think, okay, finally, this is the moment of reckoning. It is certainly something that's made people who are on the path to being alarmed or significantly concerned, it can tip them over into the alarmed and bring about the kind of light bulb moment I had with the climate strike. It can make them go, okay, I need to do more about this. I need to be involved. I need to find a way. And and do not underestimate that as being a really powerful thing. I think of all the things that have happened with the climate, with the for the climate change movement by the fires, is it's it's brought some new people into the movement, different people who have been mobilized by that. But what the research I've done on how people have responded to the fires and the research I've seen done by others is that what it can do is just make people double down on their already existing view about climate change. Really? Wow. Yes. So if you are disengaged from the issue, um, generally you see it as messy and political and nasty and left-wing and all the rest of it, and the fires happen and you say to people, see, that's climate change, they push back hugely on it. They go, no, 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 it was lack of backburning, it was arsonists and all the rest of it. Yeah, I've, I've done all of these interviews where if people didn't see the link between extreme weather events and climate change before this, it's very unlikely they'd see it after. Mm. I mean, one of the biggest things I'd say to communicators, and, and, and good communicators know this, is listen before you talk. What matters to this person? How do they actually see the issue? What, what, 
what, if any, links do they see between the world around them and climate change and acting on climate change? If they don't see those links, there are ways that you can highlight them, but to push those links often means they push back. How can you find other ways into talking about these kinds of things? How can you, um, you know, what is the what is the path of least resistance and to, in order to get people all to get to the same position in the end? One of the things when I went to the Yale Climate Program and talked to all the fantastic um, academics and postdoctoral students there is that they were, you know, really, really laser focused on, you know, whenever you're talking about climate change, you have to think about who are you talking to, what issue in the myriad of issues under the climate change banner are you talking to them about and what do you want to get them to do? Mm. So if, if for people who continue to doubt the links between climate change and extreme weather events and all the rest of it, um, and what you're trying to get them to do is vote or support policies to renewable energy. It may be that you don't have a conversation with them about the links between it, fires and climate change, because all you do is get bogged down there. Work out, like I said, the path of least resistance. If they're enthusiastic about renewable energy, they think there's going to be multiple benefits for us all moving into that area. They've got no love for the fossil fuel companies, right? Then, and you want them to vote for political parties or support policies on that, then that's what you nail. You may not even mention the word climate change. And I guess a lot of these ideas are captured in your book, which is called How to Talk to People About Climate Change. Tell me more about your book, Rebecca. I wrote it in five weeks with no air conditioning over the fire. Wow. <laughs> I wrote 65,000 words. It nearly killed me. Yeah, it sounds like it was a sort of a writing fury almost. Why did you write this book? I wrote the book because for me, other than getting my tattoo, the best way for me to work out what to do with this is to write a book about it. And it was interesting because at the time, you know, lots and lots of publishers wanted to have meetings, but a lot of them said, oh, no one wants to talk about climate change. Who wants to read a book about how to talk about climate change? But of course, when the fires happened, they all came back and said, oh, you know, we should have. But I have a wonderful publisher who kind of saw the importance of the book very early and also saw the importance of a accessible, not academic book that wasn't about the science of climate change, it was about how our, our emotional and psychological response to it. So I was very lucky to have that support. So, um, it was also an opportunity for me to go beyond the kind of normal analysis that I've done in my work, which is very much along the kind of social political analysis, and a little bit more into the psychology of why people respond the way they do. And so not having a psychology background, it was a bit of a crash course in psychology 101. Um, and I was happy to have that. So I'm very proud of it and can't wait to find a way to talk about it when it comes out. And what do you hope to achieve um, by publishing this book? Do you want people to read it and start talking to each other about climate change? What's the purpose? I, I'm not naive. I think the people who are going to pick it up are people who are already alarmed and concerned about climate change. So what I hope it will do is get them to have a better understanding of their emotional reaction to climate change and why they respond the way they do. So it's a little, there's a little bit of a self-help strand in it, even though I'm not a psychologist. But there is also helping people understand why other people respond the way they do. So after the fires, there's you know lots of stuff in my social circle and social media. Oh, I can't believe all these stupid people who don't see this as climate change. Like trying to get people to understand that the people who don't 
feel the way you do about climate change aren't necessarily stupid or anything. This is where, where they're coming from. So I hope to generate some sense of understanding and empathy that we have for each other about how we approach this. And because that's a necessary prerequisite to the consensus we need to act, right? People, we can get people to act on the solutions about climate change because they're so positive, but everybody's gonna have a different reason to do it and we need to respect that. And then, so I also want people to, with that empathy, with that understanding, I hope people can have the conversation or manage the conversation when it comes up better. So, I mean, I use the analogy throughout the book of when I think about the Six Americas study, like all these different people with their different approaches to climate change, I think of the Christmas dinner, you know, after Christmas dinner, everybody's had a couple of drinks or Christmas lunch, you know, Uncle Fred gets in an argument with, you know, his niece or, you know, somebody else, everybody's yelling. And I, I kind of want at least somebody to have read the book and either sit back and understand what's happening around them mm. or diffuse that conversation. Find a new way to talk about the conversation. So that's what I hope. I hope it has those three three outcomes. So interesting. So instead of sort of making climate change the issue we don't talk about at Christmas dinner, yeah. it's an issue that we can talk about. That we can talk about, exactly. Fantastic. I can't wait. So when's the book coming out? Well, well, the books is coming out at the end of June. Okay. Um, probably in, uh, I imagine first in, in audio and ebook because we may still be confined to our houses, but there will be hard copies that people can get delivered to them along with their Chinese um, dinners and stuff <laughs> and so forth by um, some kind of courier. But anyway, we'll see how we go. Well, at least we'll have something good to read if we're all still in lockdown then. Okay, so to sum up, Rebecca, what are your top tips for communicators? Listen understand what matters to that person and try and find a way really and way and and you have to be really creative about that to connect what that who that person is and what they value to action on climate change and um and it's it, you can do it i mean i'll give you an example of some advice i actually gave last year to a whole lot of communicators who were actually going to one of them was going to be doing an interview for Italian Vogue. All right. <laughs> and one of the que- they rang me and they said one of the questions, Rebecca, is for people who love fashion, why should they care about climate change? And I said, it's interesting. And I thought about it and I said, well, one of the things that's really clear is that one of the great inspirations for fashion, as long as there has been fashion, has been the natural world. Mm, interesting. And fashion always reflects the mood of our society. It is an artistic expression, almost, isn't it? Absolutely. And so. One of the things that happens, a more chaotic, a more drab, a more environmentally degraded, a more, you know, I mean, scorched earth is not going to inspire beautiful, luxurious, wonderful fashion. Um, And then, of course, the fashion industry is like any other industry. It's an industry that relies on consumers. And the more and more you have people economic disruption around climate change, the more you have people not having the kind of disposable income and and lifestyles where they need fashion, the less likely they are to buy your products. And so there was a whole range of things that I tried to connect. So climate change and fashion don't seem to be two things very connected, but you can find them when you think about it. Good communication on climate change requires a curiosity about people and empathy and an ability to be creative in how you connect this massive really kind of almost overwhelming issue 
to the things that matter to an individual in their day-to-day life. I love it. Curiosity, empathy and connecting what people value to action on climate change. Thanks so much for sharing your insights with me today, Rebecca. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to this episode of Changing the Climate Conversation. Don't forget to join us next time. And if you like what we're doing, please share this episode, subscribe to our show and let us know your questions and comments as we continue to explore how communicators can change the climate conversation. Bye for now.